folks, welcome to the Dispatch podcast, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. I'm Sheila Mullican here with Joseph Rickey. And today we are going to talk about the Fuller Story Initiative, a very uh, unique endeavor that began here in Franklin a couple of years ago and has found a creative solution to a question that a lot of communities are dealing with today regarding monuments. And we are joined by Dr. Chris Williamson and Eric Jacobson, CEO of the Battle Franklin Trust, to talk a little bit. These are founders of this movement and to talk a little bit about how that has played out here in the community and what they believe uh, there is to learn from this for other communities as well. And they're also Tennessee's People of the Year. Oh, yeah. Two out of four. Tennessee has named them as people. (laughs) Congratulations. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the Fuller story because the discussion across the entire country, really period of national reckoning for Southerners, Northerners, for just Americans in general, to understand first what the Confederacy was, but then also to understand why these monuments were put up. So after we introduce ourselves, let's dive into sort of what brought both of you gentlemen into looking at this monument here in Franklin and then what what the steps were to kind of come to the conclusion of the fuller story. So Eric, obviously the CEO and historian of the Battle of Franklin Trust, uh, what got you to this point? Oh goodness, that's a that's a bit of a loaded question. Um, it was just you know, having studied this for so many years and been involved even though I wasn't probably consciously thinking about it, the, uh, the the reckoning, the reckoning with our past, race and slavery and what the Confederacy was was built upon, it seemed impossible to stay away from what was brewing in Franklin after Charlottesville in 2017. And then, you know, I had the good fortune of meeting Chris just a, a, a few days later after the uh, prayer vigil that was held in the square. And I'd, I mean, I'd been working in the field for that point 12 or 13 years but i just i felt drawn to get involved to to not stand on the sidelines and i think for me as as you mentioned trying to figure out who put these statues up why they put them up and where they put them up is critical to understanding why some people have such disdain for them i think if we just start with the statues and we don't go back to the root cause in terms of coming out of the Civil War and wanting to create a narrative, um, but also a place of marking territory, continuing to perpetuate a myth of white supremacy, uh, intimidation. Um, Those things are connected to these statues. And as there are many in our community that want to speak of heritage and even history, they're not really being true. Because when we start talking about history, Um, Not only are they telling the story in a skewed way, they are intentionally leaving out important elements of what happened during that time. So there's the African proverb that the the, the tale of the hunt is told differently from the perspective of the lion as opposed to the hunter. And so through time, we've been able now to tell more of the story, a fuller story. And that's, you know, where it develop for us, but it didn't start off this way. Because as Eric mentioned, um, there was much debate going on in the country at that time around Confederate statues, and they were being literally ripped down and pulled down, um, especially as a response to community uprisings, police killings, 
acts of injustice. And so people were taking out their uh, anger, resentment on these statues. And so when things happened in Charlottesville, we did gather in the city square to pray. And that was our initial feeling. We wanted it gone. Kevin Riggs, who got on the news, said that. Uh, I felt that. But then uh, another brother got in contact with us, and he's sitting to my left. He had a different view to say, you know what, we can take these statues down, and, and granted, many of them need to come down that represent certain uh, real-life people. But if we take them down, that doesn't erase what happened. So how do we, again, try to coexist with, with the truth of history? And that's how the fuller story happened. Chris, you've lived in this community for a long time. You raised mm -hmm. a family here. Um, yeah. What, it, prior to Charlottesville and some of these tipping points that really brought the reckoning to a head, what did it mean to you to drive through the, the square at Franklin as an African-American man with a car full of African-American children growing up in this community and see that statue there? What did it mean? What did you tell them about that? Did you have conversations with your kids about it? Well, um, I really paid it no mind. I knew it was there. I knew what it stood for. Um, but I really paid it no mind. I was more so on personal levels dealing with people who believe that the war was not fought with slavery as a central component. Um, and these were people that I went to church with. Mm. So talking with people who believe that the war couldn't have been fought over slavery because Slaves were a part of the uh, Confederacy. And, you know, so those were the narratives and the whole states' rights stuff. So I really didn't pay much attention to that statue in the middle. Now, had it been Nathan Bedford Forrest or Robert E. Lee, then that would be different for me. But I wasn't from here, coming from in from Maryland. I was called a carpetbagger when I got here. Um, so I knew it was there and I knew what it meant. But for me, I just didn't pay much attention to it. And Eric, as a historian, you're constantly addressing some of the same things that Chris is talking about, the lost cause narrative. You're getting the, the states' rights argument. Recently, we've had a meeting where we talked about a lot of the red herring arguments that get thrown out about the Confederacy and about the Civil War. And obviously, you have a very different approach to first addressing some of those questions, but also how we counter them. What did the monument when you first got here and some of your experiences in the square, how did that shape where we ended up here in 2021? You know, I, I think in many ways, <clears throat> my feelings about the monument were probably not dissimilar to what Chris just uh, expressed. I didn't really think about it one way or the other. I, I certainly didn't have any, you know, emotions about it either way. It was a, it was a monument to soldiers who had fought in the Confederacy at the Battle of Franklin. Um, but I've always been puzzled at the... Um, at the group of people who have tried to distance themselves from every, almost every aspect of the Confederacy. And, you know, they, they'll, they'll gravitate toward what the soldiers believed or what they thought. And it's not really relevant what the soldiers thought on either side. It was the politics of slavery and the expansion of slavery and the ongoing fights both in the halls of Congress and uh, through various presidential elections that it was abundantly clear that this, I mean, this country had struggled with the issue of slavery from the onset. I mean, our, our, 
our moral document, the Declaration of Independence, states that all men are created equal. Well, slavery is certainly quite a contradiction um, to that statement, and you know, we so we go through the Constitution and pr the process of its ratification, and then just establishing the country, and the slave trade ends, but the politics of slavery is just seeped into everything. And and of course, the average white person in the first half of the 19th century, North or South, had huge racial issues. Um, you know, today we we you can call it white supremacy, you can call it racism, you can call it racial bigotry, whatever. But there was a distinct difference. The North was moving toward being free. States in which slavery had existed had abolished it. New states, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Minnesota, slavery never existed there. And in the South, slavery was growing, and it was flourishing, and it was expanding, and people were getting filthy rich. And it exploded, you know, in, in our faces. And so when these monuments began to put up in, in the 20, 30, 40 years after the war, it just didn't seem, um, I think, palatable to go back and relive the, the old days of the 1850s and the 1860s. You, they, it had to be sanitized and watered down that everyone was a hero and they were fighting for their homes and their hearth. And, you know, and they were. But it, underneath it all was race and slavery, and that literally is whitewashed out. In fact, to such a point that the bulk of the white population of the country, north, uh, east, west, almost becomes um, enamored with the same sort of Confederate propaganda. Uh, many people not from the south would look at a Confederate monument and say, why would you want to take it down? It's erasing history. You know, that's, that's the line, right? So all that being said, when we got together, um, there were certainly people who wanted to remove the monument, but I knew that there were also people who didn't want to tell this other side of the story. So I thought, well, why not, you know, why not stick my head through that hole in the fence and see what's on the other side? And uh, I thought, well, why can't we do both? Why can't we keep this monument up, which has been there since 1899, no matter what we think of it? We may not even like it. We may love it. We may be ambivalent about it, but let it stay there. And let's, but let's tell this other story. Let's challenge the community and see if they could actually do two things at once. And, you know, those, those early days were very, very interesting because we were challenging everyone's, including ourselves, how they felt. And for some people, it was just how they felt about the square in Franklin. It wasn't a black or white thing or north or south. It was their little town. And you know, we were causing a ruckus, and people, well, there's, there's no problem. In fact, I'll never forget one of our, um, uh, our local representatives reminded us in a public meeting that Franklin's not Charlottesville, and it was everything that I could, had to hold myself back because what I wanted to say is that that's what they said in Charlottesville. It can't happen here. And we were trying to prevent something like that from happening here, but also be forthright and honest about what we had done what these old monuments meant and what a new kind of interpretation, which simply involved telling an old story they've been covered up and throwing it all out there and saying, let's just do this. Let's see if we can get it accomplished. So the fuller story, uh, what ended up being fleshed out on the square actually came in two phases. The first of the phases was a group of signs that told more of the story. And then the second phase, of course, is a statue that was dedicated this past fall 
tell us a little bit about how you guys landed on which stories were important to tell. What, what were those signs going to say? Well, I, I can speak to at least one that I felt very strongly about long before we met. And it was the story of human beings being bought and sold in Franklin's town square. Because Franklin is and was the county seat. And so county seats had courthouses. And courthouses were places where uh, enslaved people were bought and sold for decades in communities all over the Old South. And there had, uh, in Franklin, there was a market house. Uh, which stood in very close proximity to the courthouse. And, you know, just about anything could be bought and sold there, including people. And people were often sold, not just as a matter of fact, but as a, as a, as a process, which is one of the most insidious um, elements of um, slavery, is people would often be sold to satisfy debts for a master who had died or a master who'd gotten, like, in hock with the bank. So they were, they were, they were sold off, like, like, articles to to you know garner cash many years ago i was at a meeting where we were having yet another discussion about some reenactment or living history event which i was in i guess i was in a particular mood that day and wasn't really interested in doing another reenactment and i just threw out perhaps we should have a reenactment of a slave auction in the square and of course everybody in the room looked mortified and i said well i'm not really serious but you know if we're going to reenact stuff why don't we reenact something that's really real and that's why I love you. <laughs> and, and so that was a marker that I thought had to, be, had to be written, had to be edited, had to be approved, and had to be stuck in the ground so that people could read it every day and could thus never again deny that that's what happened here in this town, special and beautiful as it may be. It happened right here. And if it happened here, my goodness gracious, mm -hmm. it was happening everywhere. And when I learned this from Eric... Um, at this time, Sheila, I'd been living here for over 25 years. Had never heard anything close to that, that my ancestors were sold right in the center of Franklin, Tennessee. Um, it shook me. And as we talked about the markers, what we would put up, one of the things I said to the guys is that uh, the slavery marker is important. The buying and the selling is important to put up. But we also have to realize that that is not the totality of who my people happen to be. And that's where the story of the USCTs come in, as well as Reconstruction. That that second courthouse, the historic courthouse, has a significance to our story. There was a provost's office in that building. Once the, the federal army occupied it, escaped slaves from the area and from the Emancipation Proclamation came there in order to get their paperwork to join the army. That liberated me, that uh, encouraged me, that gave me a greater sense of hope and value to know what my ancestors did. Not even, they weren't even citizens legally, yet they fought for the country. And there was no guarantee of what would happen to them. We know what would happen had they lost. The North lost the war. But even with them winning, there, there were no promises made of them acquiring full citizenship and what that would mean. But they fought because they were brave. They fought because it was the right thing to do. And uh, we need to hear more about that and not just the docility 
you know, that they want to portray of us being slaves and or, or sex crazed or uh, animals in need of being led by the white man, all those kind of narratives mm-hmm. that we need to hear the other stories that many of those generals, um, commanders, as they trained the former enslaved and, and they spoke of their bravery and, um, and the fact that these guys had weapons and they use weapons. I mean, that story. And so the day the statue was unveiled, I think the thing that uh, sticks out of my mind the most is that there's a picture of a young black boy looking up at the statue surrounded by white children. And he's looking up. And I said to myself, I'm 53. I was 53 at the time. This is my first time seeing something like this. Mm-hmm. Never seen anything like this in my life. I've seen so many Confederate statues, mm-hmm. but I've never seen one like this in person. And he's getting a jump <laughs> on the game at yeah. six or seven years old uh, because representation and imagery matters, which is why people are fighting to keep the statues up. Um, but for us, we said, man, let's put something up. And that became our focus, the markers, the statue. And and I think it can be replicated in other communities if they want it. But this kumbaya that we're feeling now wasn't always that way. We yeah, had, you faced opposition, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> from <laughs> both sides. From both I sides. mean, you got pushback. From the black community, from the white community. That's, yeah. when you know, that's when you know you might be on the right track. Come on. Everybody's mad at you. <laughs> like you're taking it from both sides. Yes, sir. But along the line of, 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 of the story beyond the enslaved, that's why I felt that Samson Keeble, you know, here was a man, first black representative in the Tennessee General Assembly. This is right after the war. Mm-hmm. Everybody's heard of Robert E. Lee, George Washington. I mean, I'm not comparing those two, but, you know, everybody's heard of these guys. How many people in Tennessee have ever heard of Samson Keeble? And you, know, you think these, these men... Who, who for the first time could serve in mm-hmm. the state or, f- or, or U.S. Congress, by the end of Reconstruction, they were being forced out. And black men and later women would not serve in the houses of Congress for almost 100 years. That has to be recognized, that there were people brave enough to do it, but once again the door was shut. And, and, I, and I felt that those markers, that's all part of the progress of, you know, I don't know whether it's contrition, understanding, accepting, just being honest. That's, that's I think, yeah. at the heart of the fuller story. Just being honest. We didn't do it. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. But somebody did something at some point. And my, my issue is for people who detach themselves by saying they didn't do it, they sure don't want it told well, what happened. And that's where the opposition came from, is I've said many times, I don't carry around any guilt, but being complicit is being mm-hmm. partially guilty. And too many people, quite frankly, when the biggest opposition, we heard, I guess, two yeah. levels of opposition. One was, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to change the square? And there was that. But the other opposition was they did not want Black history told. I, I, I'll, so I'll bear the dirty little secret here. They did not want black history told within the shadow of that Confederate monument. That's the truth. It wasn't that the city or the community was opposed. There was a particular group of people, 
many of them not even from this community, outside agitators who are always otherwise complaining about outside agitators, mm-hmm. inserting their, their, you know, their words into a local community effort and, and saying that I remember sitting in a meeting where one of them told Pearl Bransford, God rest her soul, why don't you take those markers and put them up by Carter House? We don't want them in the square. And I thought, ooh, there it is right there. Mm-hmm. There it is right there. You, you just said it. You just don't want that history. And why not? Because the public square has been dominated since 1899 by the Confederate monument. And, and those same people will be quick to tell you that they don't have a racist bone in their body. <laughs> and systemic racism doesn't exist. Uh, but I'm glad we pressed through. I'm so thankful that the mayor, city planner, the board of aldermen got with us. And there were more people with us than against us. But I think for us, it really didn't matter. We had tunnel vision for a while. We, we, we were locked and loaded on what needed to happen. It was the right thing to do. Um, and for me, that's the least I could do when I think about the sacrifices again, that my ancestors went through, that I was standing on the shoulders of great men and women who exhibited great bravery and courage. And the consequences for resisting the status quo was harsher for them. So I didn't care if I got a couple of nasty grams from people. Um, that pales in comparison to what they went through so that I could be where I am today. And I, I felt like I had a responsibility to, to tell that story and to get that statue up and to w- work with Joe Howard, an African-American man from Tennessee. I just felt like the Lord's hand was on it in a way, redeeming certain aspects of what happened in the past. And when, again, that day came, our city was unified. Black history went forth, told from the lips of black and white men. We had a, a, a choir singing from the Negro spiritual uh, persuasion. And the city was unified around truth and honor and love. And so I'm grateful. And now they're telling us that uh, they're going to put March to Freedom on the front of tourism uh, pamphlets and things that are going out now. So So people are proud of this now, where there may have been shame and even ignorance because they didn't know. Now they're celebrating. And, and, And I know when I go downtown now, I'm purposely going around that circle Mm-hmm. Not to look at Chip, but to look at March to Freedom. I just like to look at him, make sure he's all and right. it's so <laughs> important that it's right there on the square That's because right. there are people who will visit the square who will never come to us at Carter House or Carton. And they're not going to hear those stories, but they're going to read those signs mm-hmm. and they're going to see March to Freedom and interact yeah. with him. And I see it happening all the time. It's yeah, and that may make them want to go to Carter House yeah. and Carton Plantation. And I want to thank you guys for telling the truth. It wasn't always this way. When I got here in 1993, there was a one-sided perspective being told about the Civil War. Um, and I know that you guys have faced much criticism. But again, if, if the right people are shooting at you, you must be doing the right thing. Truth is offensive, uh, but it's also healing. And once you let it cut you, it can heal you. And so I don't understand why I live in a county that uh, wants to deny the past. Let's just tell the truth and let people decide. And that's one of the things that Eric said to us in the early days. Let's tell the truth and let people make up their own mind on what they're going to believe. And for a lot of people, they just never knew these things, including myself. And so once I got the knowledge, I'm like, I got to tell it. And we're going to keep telling it. 
That's one of the things that you had kind of alluded to, and maybe it's the imagery of it, is that child looking up at the monument and recognizing that we didn't, and that this community didn't, and that neither of you gentlemen did, neither did Hewitt or neither did, uh, did uh, Kevin Riggs, you guys didn't do it for yourselves. You did it for the next generation, for that young child's generation, so that we could go into the future. And that brings us to the next part, which is probably the best part to, to wrap up with, is, is where do we go onwards? Where does March to Freedom March to? Where do we keep going in the future? What's the next step for the Fuller Story Project? Because it's enough to have the monument there. It's enough to have the markers there. But I know you like to push the envelope. And you like to keep going forward, and you like to keep prodding forward. So, what is that next push? What is the next push on the envelope, and where does the story continue to be told? One of the incredible benefits for an organization or a group of people um, who live <clears throat> or who work in Franklin is it truly is a is a town rich with tourism and rich with history. So, by telling this story in the square. There are thousands of people every day who see it, who learn about these men, what the statue represents. Perhaps they learn about the market house. Perhaps they just learn about the Battle of Franklin. And then they leave. And then they go spread those seeds in other parts of the country. And so the way that we push the uh, ball down the field is really twofold. Part of it is already planted in the square and and they'll go off and do their thing and then there are other people who visit us and then they visit carter house carnes and aripa villa we give them an honest and sometimes difficult view of our past and encourage them to go see the square we encourage them to go not only read the markers but go see the confederate monument and go see the usct statue and then allow yourself to reach your own conclusions because I don't believe that you, as I said, I think in a recent article, I reject outright this idea that you can erase history. But there is something very powerful about seeing these two pieces of history side by side as they were not only in 1855 when slavery still existed and human beings were being sold in the square, but in 1864 when some of these men clashed on battlefields. And then in 1867 and 1875, when they were living in a post-war world filled with wide disorder. So how do we push it? The, I've always thought this was, this was a big achievement. I'm proud to have been part of it. But this is just one step on the way. Other communities, it's up to them. We did what we could for not only this town, but I believe the Middle Tennessee area. And I think there could be some inspiration around here that leads to Columbia, Nashville, Murfreesboro, leading the effort to tell this story because Pulaski, mm -hmm. you know, there's th this history is not unique. Certain components of it are unique to Franklin, mm -hmm. but the history itself is a broad and rich tapestry. So I just think we've done our part. Yes. It's the beginning and it's a ripple effect. I have Native Americans who attend my church. And one of the things I said to them about this is that this will open up the door for us to tell their story in this community. So what's next? It's telling that story in the Trail of Tears. Things that we kind of know, but we really have not promoted well. We haven't really mined well. So, uh, so now's that time to tell that story. And, and I know there are people that don't want to hear that story either. Uh, but so be it. <laughs> uh, Dr. King used to say, uh, truth crushed the earth will rise again. 
So you could try to crush it, but, but, but truth is going to emerge. One of the segments that we are going to try and work into the show is we want you to listen to the episode and we want to be able to communicate some of the things that we're doing here because our mission is to educate, but we can't do it all in 30 minutes in an episode. So what we challenge our listeners to do is pick up a book, read it yourself. And by doing that, we're going to try and promote some of the things that we're reading and some of the things that we sell here at Carter House Carton and Ripavilla. And one of the books that we have that is very tied into this um, uh, this topic that we've discussed for the last 30 minutes, uh, Sheila is going to tell us about. It's a book called How the Word uh, is Passed, and it's by Clint Smith. He's a writer for the Atlantic Monthly, and he visited several locations, uh, both throughout America and uh, one in Africa as well, that are connected to slavery. And so this is a reckoning with slavery by being actually in the places where it was fleshed out. He goes to Monticello, he goes to the Whitney Plantation, he goes to the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is on the site of an old plantation, Angola Plantation. He talks with the people there. He even visits a Confederate cemetery, ironically, uh, since we were right here next to a Confederate cemetery, uh, and goes to a gathering of sons of Confederate veterans. So he's a person who is willing to learn, who's eager to learn, who wants to understand, but he shares the words of the people who are in these places. He tells their stories. And he, I, I feel like he's very balanced, but he's also provocative. I mean, he's going to challenge. Uh, the words that you read will challenge you. They challenged me, and they stretched me. And I think it's an important book for us to deal with as a part of this reckoning with slavery, with what it has meant and how it has knitted itself into the fabric of who we are as Americans in ways that we don't always recognize. Sometimes it's so subtle that we don't see how it's impacting us even today. And so I believe that this book is very enlightening and is really going to help us understand that better. Eric, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on The Dispatch. And we want to thank our listeners for tuning in for the first of many episodes that we'll have here. Again, you are listening to The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. If you haven't subscribed already, hit like, hit subscribe, and leave us a review. And we'll see you on the battlefield.